Uh, good morning. Uh, many of you know who I am. I'm Wendell Moses. I'm filling in for Tim Jennings. He's in Nashville at a um, meeting there, making some presentations and whatnot. So um, I appreciate you being here. I also appreciate you participating during the class. So it always is a little leisure when you guys speak up. Um, a couple of announcements before we begin. Um, for those of you who um, don't know, Tim's sister-in-law passed away this morning early. Linda Jennings' sister-in-law, uh, wife of Bill, his brother, and um, happened about 2.30 or so this morning. Um, so remember those families and their prayers, and let's begin with a prayer. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the privilege of coming together and talking about you. We invite your Holy Spirit to come and open our minds, to prepare us, to help us to receive you. Give us understanding. May we know you. May we know your Son. And may we know how to help those around us see you more clearly. Be with those who have lost this week. Be with those who are struggling. And be with those who are here as well as those who aren't. Amen. So this week is lesson number two in the study on the book of Jeremiah, um, hopefully. Um, <laughs> um, the title of the lesson is The Crisis Within and Without. And um, first I'd like to say that I had a great deal of difficulty for the first half of this week, and I couldn't get over the word crisis, and I won't go beyond that. You know, I have come to terms with using the word. So reading the memory verse, the memory verse comes from... Um, Jeremiah 2, verse 3, and in the lesson quarterly, it's from the New King James Version. Israel was holiness to the Lord, the first fruits of his increase. All that devour him will offend. Disaster will come upon them, says the Lord. It's like, it's almost as bad as, I don't know. Um, I have a difficult time understanding that. Um, I don't know if you have a favorite translation um, that you read from. Um, I often... I have about four that I switch back and forth between. God's Word translation translates that same verse. Israel was set apart for the Lord. It was the best part of the harvest. All who devoured it became guilty, and disaster struck them, declares the Lord. You know, Israel was a special um, people, and uh, they had a special mission. Um, Some people feel that they still do. Um, we won't go there. Um, reading the first paragraph in the lesson quarterly, if we could pick one word to describe the human condition since the fall, it would be the crisis, the extent of which can be best understood by what it took to get us out of the crisis, the death of Jesus on the cross. The crisis must be pretty bad. After all, look at the extreme measures needed to solve it. I have a couple questions about that. What do you think of the extreme measures that took to solve the crisis? What all did they include? Was it just the death of Christ? Was there anything else it required? If it was the death of Christ, why couldn't he have been the first child of Eve? Yes. I think that uh, this world is a demonstration to everybody else in the universe of uh, the evils that sin does when it runs its course. 
So there had to be some demonstration of that for Christ to come and then show the difference. If it was he came to show evil, why couldn't he come before the flood? Yes. There was still sympathy in the hearts of angels and other worlds until the cross. And there's going to continue to be sympathy in the hearts of God's people for Satan until he's ready to come back, but still working so that every knee will bow. Okay. So what was accomplished what what was accomplished so far by this demonstration? Demonstration of sin. We've talked about that. And essentially, I, I would see that has been accomplished by the time the flood came. That was a pretty good demonstration of sin in the human person. Okay? Then you had the children of Israel, and then they came and, and crucified Christ. To me, that's a demonstration of what religion gone amok will do. Okay? Or have lost its focus, has lost its truth. You have the life of, life of Christ in that he not only demonstrated what God was like, but he did several things. We've talked about those in this class before. Hebrews 2.14 Since all of these sons and daughters have flesh and blood, Jesus took on flesh and blood to be like them. He did this so that by dying he could destroy the one who had power over death. That is the devil. By his death, Christ destroys the devil. Destroy the devil. John 17.3 This is eternal life to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ who you have sent. Eternal life. Number three, 2 Timothy 1.10 Now with the coming of our Savior Christ Jesus, he has revealed it. Christ has destroyed death, and through the good news he has brought eternal life into full view. So he brought it into death. There's several other things that he has accomplished through his life and death and the demonstration that has happened up to this time. Okay? Why are we still here? There's something that still is happening after the death and resurrection of Christ that is being accomplished for the universe. You had a, a question. I'm sorry. I... You touched on it uh, there, and that was, you know, why, why could Christ not have come as a baby to Eve or before the flood? And I've thought about that. But there, it seems to me that the, um, the nature of humanity before the flood, if Christ had come into that, it was very different than what he came into through, through, the, uh, through the nation of Israel and through uh, a group of people who were claiming to love God. And so there is um, probably a very different demonstration um, and a lesson to learn there and that he came in, I forget what the text is, but to his friends and we see how he was treated. So. Okay. Was Christ's death on the cross just for this human condition? No. Why not? You know, it, it, Paul talks about how this is the, the story that angels wish to look at. Okay? It'll, it'll be our life and song and investigation for the rest of eternity. Often it's portrayed as just, we have this contract here. Yes? Jesus said, 
I be lifted up, I will draw all unto me. And they, the English Bible we supply men, but it really has a lot more um, outreach than just men. It has right. the entire universe. Right. The issue at hand is bigger than us. It, it's you, bigger. You can imagine with all the angels before the fall trusted this being who was their leader and then he let off a third of them and the two-thirds that were still left behind I bet had some real serious questions and I don't think it's simply you know good guy bad guy I think there's a lot more issues involved than what my brain has been able to come up with yes Russell getting back to your original question about why why things took so long? Why why not why not have uh, uh, Eve's first child be the Messiah? It, it's it's a statement about how God runs His government. He starts giving evidence. He gives evidence. He creates the earth. He creates uh, animals and fish and fowl to populate the earth. He creates man and woman in His own image, and He starts laying out evidence. He doesn't He doesn't stand up there and by sovereign fiat say. This is the way it is, like it or not, take it or leave it, uh, you listen to me or I'll torment you. He, he lays out evidence and leaves people free to make their own decisions, leaves his beings free to make their own decisions. I think it's very, um, very helpful because um, often we start at the fall of Adam and Eve. And really the sequence of sin went back to perfect. Mm-hmm. It went back to perfect. And then, you know, I was just trying to put down the, the list of, um, and I can't read Roman numerals without what number I got up to. So, anyway, um, whatever. Um, the rebellion of Lucifer, the miscommunication by Lucifer to other angels, lies, other thing. Open rebellion in heaven between God and his angels, expulsion of one third, and then the creation of the earth, the tree of good and evil within the garden. And you can talk a long time about why it was and how what its arrangement. And depending upon your perspective on that, you have a very distorted view of what God was like, you know. And yet, this was an act of love as well when in protecting them and whatnot. And we can keep on going on that. But anyway, the temptation and fall of Adam and Eve, the subsequent history of mankind, which we've talked about briefly, God's wooing influence throughout the pre-children of Israel time. You think about that. Often we pass over the Judges and Ruth and all that sort of stuff as if it's just filler until Christ came. But things were going on there that were critical for the demonstration and the solution to sin. Abraham's separation as a separate family, the selection of a family for God, the ups and downs of Abraham's offspring and all the, you know, gives me hope. The land of Canaan and the settlers, and then the apostasy during that time, and then Christ's life and death, and then the subsequent years. This week's lesson carves out from the entering of Canaan until um, the overthrow by Babylon. And um, it talks about the apostasy of the next generation after the entry into Canaan. It describes... um, the division of Israel into two kingdoms and the types of evil, the abandonment of God, and then the the solution that they have come up with, the Babylonian threat, and then the the source of our willingness to obey truth. Um, 
Reading the third paragraph on Sabbath afternoon's lesson. Go ahead, if you have it. Third paragraph. God's people faced many challenges, both from within and from without. Unfortunately, despite the terrible military threat from foreign powers, in many ways the greatest crisis came from within. Within meant not just a corrupt leadership and corrupt priesthood, which were bad enough, but within was in the sense of people whose hearts had been so hardened and damaged by sin and apostasy that they refused to heed the warnings that God was sending them, warnings that could have spared them from disaster. What do you call it when an individual is not listening and is no longer susceptible to the wooing of the Holy Spirit? Unpardonable sin. Okay? I'd like to ask some questions about the unpardonable sin. Do you or does a person commit the unpardonable sin? It's not an action. It's not an action. It's a condition. You become the unpardonable sin. Does it have anything to do with your actions? If it's not an action, does it have anything to do with our actions? How? How does our actions have anything to do with if it's a condition? I think it's a continual turning away, having a deaf ear to what you know to be right. It's priorities. Yes. Actions are a fruit of the condition. Okay, it's a fruit, okay? So you have thoughts create actions, actions create habits, habits create character. Our character is not only a picture of who we are, but in and of itself, it alters the way we think, the way we hear, the way we see things in our environment and perceive the influence of God. So the unpardonable sin is a condition of the heart and mind, but the thoughts are the foundation of this are both active and passive. So our actions are an important part, and it's why we have to guard the avenues to our souls and ourselves. Because by passively partaking of something, we become hardened. I don't know what generation you are from but um, I mean there are many things that I grew up in as a child that I would not have thought about doing or thinking about or whatever and now with media and everything else it's a whatever you know never think about it twice you think about the change in television from the time whenever Gone with the Wind was made and it almost didn't get published as it is now, because at the end of the movie, he said, damn. It almost didn't get through the, it didn't get through the censors. In fact, they had to argue for several months over whether they let the word damn stand in that movie. And yet now, it, you, you don't even hear it. Because it's, 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 you know. All right. Um, Sunday's lesson. Um... Uh, let me. Uh, 
somewhere here. Oh, um, in the middle of the first paragraph, it says, all it took was for a new generation to arise, one that didn't know the Lord, Judges 2.10, and a spiritual crisis started that in many ways infected the nation all through its history. How does that happen? Thinking of that and going on quickly to the bottom of the page, there's a highlighted section that says, think about the problem of the next generation not having the values and beliefs of the one before it. How have we as a church dealt with this issue? I would like to ask, question, what values and beliefs did your generation have that the next generation did not have? Now, I don't care what generation you are, okay? If you're older than 25, there's another generation behind you that is whatever, okay? So, what values and beliefs did your generation have that the next generation did not have? I'm going to list off some things that have changed since, as I've grown up, okay? Dress, okay? My wife and I were somewhere. It wasn't Walmart. Um, it was in a professional environment somewhere. And she said, under her breath, oh my, look at that dress. And I looked around. I couldn't figure out what she was talking about. And she said, well, don't you see it? And this person was standing in front of us, and the dress that she was wearing did cover her bottom. <laughs> and, and that was about it, okay? But, I mean, there's a person in our office that wears that same dress every day. And so I had since ceased to see it. Okay? Going on. Respect. Paying tithes and offerings, music, work ethic, worship styles, reading God's word, rest and recreation, Sabbath. Out of those, that list, or maybe a list that you can come up with, which of the above things are values and which of those are culture? Is there a difference? When I went, I went on a trip um, shortly after residency. Um, I worked for six months at a temporary job. And then we took off six months or thereabouts. And um, we moved and we did other things, visited family we hadn't seen in months and months and got reacquainted with who they were, what they looked like. And... Um, we went for six weeks on a vacation, three weeks to New Zealand and three weeks to Tahiti. And um, being still the frugal um, student mindset, we lived with the natives in Tahiti. And that was a mistake. And we realized the mistake about halfway into it, or we have quickly learned, figured it out, but we didn't know how to get out of it. And so then we finally escaped over to another island and paid to join a French resort we couldn't talk to anybody, but at least we were not living with the natives anymore. But um, it quickly became apparent that how the Tahitian women dressed was different than what European culture says you're to dress. And yet, 
We went to church three weeks there. Um, we showed up at the first, we arrived on Sabbath. And um, our plane came in. It was supposed to have come in a different day, but it didn't and whatever. And so we arrived on Sabbath. And um, the cab driver from the airport, uh, if you call it that, um, said, where do you want to go? And it's like, well, where do, where do we go? The family we're going to stay with, we're Adventist. And so we were going to rent a room from them for a couple weeks or whatever. And um, so we said, well, they're going to be in church. And we don't know where they live. So let's go to the church. So he dropped us off at church. We walked in into this nice building, you know, for the South Pacific. And everyone is dressed as I am. Coats, ties, long sleeve shirts, hats. Now this was 95 plus degrees and the humidity was about 100%. And yet all the men were dressed like that. During a, one of the weeks we were there, we went over to Bora Bora and um, they said, oh, you're Adventist? Here, can you come and give us Wednesday evening worship service? A talk. And I thought, okay, I will. And so, you know, kind of come up with something and whatnot. And so I showed up dressed as I was for my vacation. And so I was dressed in shorts and sandals and a short sleeve, you know, shirt. I said, that won't do. And so someone took his tie off of the other person and put it around my neck. Now, it didn't match color or anything else. But now it's appropriate for me to speak up from up front. They had been indoctrinated in a culture that was appropriate for religion. And yet, when I went over to visit and tour the islands and whatnot, the women never wore upper garments until they realized a European was around, and then they quickly got some gadget and tie it around themselves. So I realize there's a lot of difference in culture, okay? But what are the values that we have that have changed in transmitting to the next generation? Have you seen any values changes in our church? And what are those values Well, I grew up in an era where on Sabbath, the mentality was, it's not what you can do on Sabbath, it's what you cannot do. There were so many negative things you could not do on Sabbath. And, I mean, I don't hold it against whoever, but now the emphasis is more on, you can do good on the Sabbath, and there's many things you can do. But back then, that was not the emphasis. And that was driven by what? What drove that behavior? There are several sources of, of behavior, and I'm, I'm sorry that I'm the wrong person to talk about this because that's not my specialty. But just thinking about it, behavior is driven by values, by culture, by beliefs, by guilt, by coercion, by habit. 
many of the things I do on a daily basis, I do by habit, not because I think they're right or wrong, but because that's how I, I, that's how I get up and that's how I do. Is behavior important? Interesting thing about the change in Sabbath behavior that she's describing is that some would see that as a perceived degradation of values and some would see it as an improvement. Okay. The same. The same, the same thing. Yes. When I was growing up, there was an emphasis on works first. Instead of, in other words, I've, I've been saying of my of growing up in this community that the evidence always got the cart before the horse. In other words, they want to focus on the works and not on the character. It's the character that drives the works, not the other way around. And I think in the previous generation, my generation, we were taught backwards, if you would. I think that when you were a child, you were trained as a child, and the child is taught by behavior. They're not, they're, a parent... Maybe now parents do more of that blah, blah, blah explanation to everything before they say, don't hit your sister, you know. But back then they said, don't hit your sister, and they smacked you. <laughs> but, but, I mean, the point is behavior matters, and I think you, uh, what, the problem may be what we did as a church is we didn't allow our members to grow up to a, another level of understanding to where now we discussed it as to maybe motivation or intention or so on. Um, uh, Maybe that's the, but, yeah. the crime. That's the crime that we did. I think that it. depends. You know, I mean, I grew up. Um, my my father was a minister. My mother explained to me that we didn't swing on Sabbath, not because it was wrong to swing on Sabbath, but because other people might look at that and judge us. You know, that it was fine to swing on Sabbath. It was fine to swim on Sabbath, but we didn't do that in public, where other people would get the wrong idea. One of my um, youth pastors, when I was in high school, um, gave up ice cream for two years. Not because he thought it was wrong. In fact, after those two years, he, he was a sponsor. Before that time and after that time, he was a sponsor for the ice cream socials we had every year in the high school. Okay, But a student came to him and said, I have difficulty with my Christian walk when you're sponsoring this thing that I think is bad. And to his credit, he said, I'm done. Until that student graduated. Fortunately, the student came as his junior year. But it's good to explain to the week, too. So how do you transmit values without transmitting behavior? Well, I think she made a good point that I think a lot of us, especially growing up in the church, growing up as Adventists and Adventist family, anyway, you know, you're taught, you know, to do a lot of things. You know, you're taught to brush your teeth, to say your prayers. To, you know what I mean? A lot of things that are related. Good to, things. Yes, a lot of good things. Yeah. A lot Appropriate of things. behaviors if you want to keep your teeth and uh, other things. But, but, you know, like we talk about a lot in this class, as you grow and mature, you learn and see the reasons behind. You know, hopefully you, you grow and you have a greater level of understanding and you mature and, you know, you take it to another you know, you continue to take it to other levels. But I think if you I think if you get stuck and say it's all about the behavior and if I don't do the behavior, you know, and, and, we, and you don't internalize the reason for the behavior and 
continue to grow and develop and mature and, you know, maybe move away from just being locked into that behavior, but the reasons behind it, and now maybe I'm moving on to a, a you know what I mean, a, another level, I, I think that it's easy to get stuck and feel like, oh, well, all they care about is the behavior. It's very easy for us to judge people's behavior. It's very hard for us to give religious liberty to other people. That's a fundamental problem with human nature. We like to control someone else. And we don't really want to be controlled ourselves. It's just kind of a fundamental way people are made. Two comments. There's, a, there's an entertaining comment here from online. It says, I was taught that it was okay to sin as long as other Adventists didn't find out. <laughs> Which I find amusing. But back to our point that Pat made about the change in perception on from one with the things you didn't do on Sabbath to the things that were okay to do on Sabbath, the focus is still on behaviors. The focus is still from a legal construct. The focus is still uh, an imposed law construct. focus of the Sabbath is not about what the Sabbath represents and what it says about God's character. It's the focus is still on, it's okay to do that on the Sabbath. It's, it's, it's legally okay. It's, it's behaviorally fine as opposed to it used to be behaviorally not fine. Where the boat is still being missed. And, and we go back to the, the seven levels of exactly. moral development. And How do you see the world as far as wh- why, what, what drives your behavior? We often come so, into contact with people that are level four and below. And like, uh, like your friend that gave up ice cream for two years, he realized that he didn't want to be a stumbling block to a student and, and that... He had no issue with ice cream, but if it was going to be a problem with someone level two or three moral development, he was okay giving it up. To me, that's the epitome of love when you're acting in the interest of the benefit of another. It's not this emotional, wishy-washy thing that we have or whatever. And um, it's truly a different definition of love. Yes. To answer your question about behavior and value... Yes. Jesus, how, how, do we, how do we transmit values without focusing so much on behavior? Well, Jesus taught a lot of things about value by his behavior. And you could see the value that other people placed on his behavior, and they didn't always line up. So a lot of things that he did exhibited the value of heaven, so they're intertwined. Okay. He was killed for it. There were, there were a lot of people okay. that misunderstood that because they chose to they chose to ignore truth they chose to deny truth okay um one of my favorite texts along this line is second uh, corinthians three eighteen. like many i forget to read the text before it or after it or whatever um, there's a lot of these favorite texts that i have that um that people only only like to do one one part of it and they don't haven't read the other part Second Corinthians three seventeen and eighteen. The, this Lord is the Spirit. Wherever the Lord's Spirit is, there is freedom. And he said, "Really? That's not what I grew up with." There is freedom as all of us reflect the Lord's glory with faces that are not covered with veils. We are being changed into His image with ever increasing glory. This comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. It's only by we change our hearts 
and that we see values in in God that are demonstrated that are attractive to us and we use his power and not our own that we can accomplish that change yes so that's really satan's original argument that if you serve the lord you have no freedom and jesus right. said that you only have two masters right and there's only true liberty in living within the design that god gave us okay moving on to monday's lesson Talks about two kingdoms with division of the kingdoms. We talk about why and how Solomon taxed them so much that they revolted and whatnot, etc., and how that happened. But, um, um, you know, the northern kingdom had twin capitals, one in Dan, which is kind of the northern part, and one was in Bethel. If you remember, Bethel was where the ark went when they first came into um, the land of Canaan. And so it was a holy city. It was looked at a revered location. And so this king set up two golden calves, one in Bethel, holy city, one in Dan. You didn't have to travel so far. And um, he asked that, hey, don't go off to the festivals down south. You know, just stay in your hometown and, and worship. So the southern kingdom was in Jerusalem, was the, the capital. And the northern kingdom, they had two twin cities. They had, and so they set up a temple in Dan, which was the northern border. Set a temple in Bethel, which was kind of the southern central border, etc. And and there was a ca- golden calf, and that was set up as being a, a site of worship, etc. And then there's you know lots of different things with the stories about how they were destroyed and whatnot. But um, why did the king do this? He was afraid. He was afraid that the people would, hey, go off to the southern kingdom and say, hey, we like this down here, you know, and whatnot, and he would lose um, his, his control. It, it was, goes back to our, our common topic in here about fear and selfishness. You know, he was fearful of what would happen. He was selfish for his control, selfish for the, what he got, etc. The southern kingdom, or, or Judah, which came from the, you know, Judah and Benjamin were together, um, now, we, we go in that story, in the stories of multiple wicked kings and the reproofs of the prophets and all this sort of stuff. I think throughout the whole thing, we sometimes miss, throughout the whole thing, God is seeking after his people. He constantly comes back and tries to woo them back, does all sorts of things to try to bring them back to him. Um... The way to, a, and that was for several reasons. The one, the, the way to the Redeemer. Christ had, still had to come. There had to be a way to the Redeemer. And that was being preserved, but at what cost? It's easy to sometimes misinterpret God's tolerance or intolerance of behavior as God's approval of something. Just because something happened doesn't mean God approved of it. When... When um, the prophet Samuel slew the king, we don't have a little reading saying, well done. He just said that it, it was done. It, it, may, it may be a necessary thing at that moment because of things that he was trying to accomplish. But we often don't have the subscripts of God's comments on behavior, and we often look at certain behaviors and say, "Well, it was God's people, and and He didn't He didn't chastise them for it, so it must be good." There's many things that happen that that cannot be described as good. It's often thought that the Bible depicts what God wants, 
instead of his loving dealings with an errant people what was necessary for preservation of an option for healing. At the bottom section, um, there's a sentence that says, Why then must we constantly test our lives against the standard of the Bible? What other standard do we have? I was thinking about that as I was driving here this morning. I passed by eight churches. There might have been nine or or ten or twelve or whatever, but I saw at least eight churches as I passed by here to get here from my house. You know, um, if you went into any of those churches and asked the members of that congregation, I'm sure they will tell you that they were followers of God. That their perception of who God is is a certain way and that has driven them to act in a certain way. Now some of them may, like myself, grew up in a church and we went to church and that's how we did it and so be it. You know, it's good enough for grandpa, it's good enough for me. How do we test ourselves to the Bible? Do we test behavior? Do we test motives? Did you ever notice that we can only test our own motives, but we're quick to test other people's behavior? Much of our culture and behavior and options are not directly discussed in the Bible due to the culture of their time versus ours. Smoking or legalization of marijuana is not discussed in the Bible. Abortion is not discussed in the Bible, despite what you might hear on radio and TV. Single parent issues are not discussed in the Bible except as it talks about widows. You don't talk about, there's no discussion of single parents in the Bible. Homelessness is not discussed in the Bible. It was a different culture. It was handled in a different way. If you read Mrs. White's writings and look up the word money to find out what she says on money, you will find very few statements. Why? She used a different language. She used the word means. You look up the word means and there is hundreds of statements about means, but there's very few statements about money. We often discuss... Things about current behavior and current values within our church, within our families, and within the culture, in which we have no clue how to relate the Bible to that issue. I think much of the discussion regarding women's ordination within the Adventist church is 21st century people having little guidance in their decisions because of the incomprehension of how to use first century writings in guiding their thoughts. I'm bombarded every day. I, you know, I think I only have, I think I have less than 20 friends on Facebook. When I got Facebook, I thought, this is a great thing. I'll learn all about my friends and keep on contact with everything. And I got the first 10 and realized, whoa, <laughs> this is not a good thing. And I have added slowly as forced by coercion, by certain things like this ice cream story before, in which I have, yes, I have added you to my friend list, 
by coercion, but I think I've restricted it now to about 20. And with that 20, I'm bombarded every day on both sides of the ordination issue, by both sides of the, of the, of the um, can a Muslim be president issue, by both sides of various issues, and we have no clue how to talk to others in a, in a civil way. And with a, a ear open to understanding what anyone's saying. We have difficulty reading a 19th century writer with any openness in understanding of her culture or ours. And consequently, it has become largely irrelevant to my son's generation. Of no value. And so, someone who is a gift to our church, you know, I lived in the era of a book called The White Lie and other diatribes against Mrs. White. And um, I had grown up being beat on the head with certain compilation books that I shouldn't, I think, should not have been written in the way they, or compiled in the way they were. I still have difficulty reading them, even though I think the writer of those things was inspired. And so I was cheap. I was a student. I hated this woman. And so I, um, I went to the presentations by the author of The White Lie. I w- and then I, f- I saw so much acid and anger and hurt displayed in that room that I said, that's not the way to go. So I had no clue how to relate to this woman that I hated. So I bought a, the very first CD that was produced with her entire, entire writings. It cost me 300 bucks. That was a big purchase at the time. And um, I was an, a ne- uh, um, neophyte computer person. And I bought the CD. And what I started doing is I started reading. Every time anyone quoted... A sentence, a phrase, or anything, and put her name on it. I went back and read the entire article that she wrote in These Times, Signs of the Times, Advent Herald, or whatever, and read the entire article from beginning to end. And what I found was, unfortunately, that even sometimes in our Sabbath school quarterly, what she was saying was the opposite of what was emphasized by that statement. And I came to love this woman and thought that she was the most open-minded individual I had read in a long time. I have, been, I, have been, I have had difficulty with the red books, the testimonies to the church, until I heard a quote from a, a, a religious friend of mine. He says, Wendell, that's to the church. You are already saved. You're already saved by grace before you read those things. If you're not saved by grace, then don't read those things. And so um, I've had a, a sojourn with that woman, and um, I enjoy her. You know, I, I like to listen to her while I'm running or whatever. But um, that has been a passage. And the verbiage, I have now understand her verbiage, but I've tried to get other people to read her book, and they said, I can't, I can understand her English, you know. 
And I have a difficult time understanding the paraphrase of her whatever's. But anyway, but um, it goes back to how do we transmit things that are of value to the next generation without behavior, without the trappings of our culture. And it's difficult. I think it's, it's difficult to perceive what someone is saying unless you understand the culture from which they're coming. Yes. Some years back, uh, Brian and I chose to eliminate all the compilations from our home because of those issues and how we saw them used. And it seems like we've been taught, you know, don't take things out of context, and yet it's done all the time. It's done with Scripture all the time. I think it goes back to what I said about the ordination and, and, and homelessness and everything else. The Bible does not cover these things. You have to read between the lines. Yes. Um, I, I apologize. I don't know the correct phrase for the seven levels. What's that called? The seven levels? Seven levels of moral development. Or, moral development. Yeah. So all the social issues that you mentioned and the ones that you didn't, culture, you could see if a new culture is introduced where it might reside in those seven levels. And some of the things you mentioned, you might see that people that are making those decisions based off of that cultural concept might not be at the highest level. So is there still a... Uh, is there still a, a desire for you know, God to reach out to those people and to make sure they understand you know, where they're at and where he would like them to be? Because a lot of those are destructive behaviors. Yes, and just because he comes and intervenes in that, that culture, that generation, that family, that whatever, does not mean that he approves of all the, all the trappings that went along with it. But he's here to woo us. And bring us to him. And the more we see of him, the more we have freedom. And the more we have an understanding of love and value for others. And a lot of that stuff that we have as trappings will fall away. You know, it was, I think, Christianity that did away with slavery. But there were many good Christians before that who had slaves and had other things and and don't come look at my house, but anyway. Um, because often we perceive things that are not what God understands us to, to want. And we have enculturated certain things into our religions that um, have hurt others. That's why we have to read the scripture with humility and with the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Wednesday's lesson talks about the, the invasion of Babylon or the impending Babylonian threat. And um, it talks about the history of the kingdom of Judah with its relationship with Egypt and Assyria and Babylon and whatnot. Reading the last paragraph, again and again, Jeremiah warned the people about what would happen because of their sin. And time and again, many of the political and religious leaders refused to heed the warnings. Believing instead what they wanted to believe, which is that the Lord would spare them after all, were they not God's specially called people? I have grown up in a church that thought they were God's specially called people. And I believe they are. They came to give a prophetic message 
Sometimes, though, the message that the church was supposed to give has gotten jumbled by the accoutrements of the church. At the bottom of the the lesson it says, when was the last time you believed what you wanted to believe, no matter how obviously wrong that belief turned out to be? What lessons have you learned so that the same thing doesn't happen again? Now, I had some questions about that. Have you ever done that? Did you have, give me an example. I just read the question. Well, that's that's the thing. It's like, what did you believe that wasn't right? And so I I just started trying to play with that. It said, um, have you ever been blinded by love? Believe that someone was better than they were. It it could be real love, but because of certain things that happen to us, and there's even chemical things that happen to us when we're in love, that make us less discerning. Have you been blinded by something else? Something you wanted to be true, so you believed it to be true. Have you ever bought a car that was used? Now, some of that you don't know about. But some of the stuff you could figure it out if you just looked. Okay? You know, there's two things you're not supposed to talk about in public with your friends at at work or whatever. What are those two things? Religion and politics. Why? No. It's not controversial is that whenever you have a certain mindset, you often cannot see the truth in someone else's mindset. And so consequently, we have conflicts over inability to see that there may be truth in the middle or there may be some truth in each thing. Someone asked me what I thought of the Pope. And I said, when he says what God says, I like him. (laughs) You know, there are many things that he has said that I I agree with. There are many things he has said that I do not agree with. Okay? But the reason we cannot talk about religion or politics is because sometimes we are so settled into whatever that we cannot hear the other person speaking. On the other hand, I tell a story from this week about watching the Pope on... TV in the doctor's lounge where we've eaten lunch together for years and um, a cradle to grave Catholic, a Jew, an an atheist, an Orthodox Greek, and myself sitting around the table and the Catholic said, I don't agree with the Pope, which we all kind of, this is an observant Catholic. And he said, he's wrong, he's wrong. And we talked about infallibility of the Pope with that context that's taken in. Uh, the atheist asked an earnest question of, how can you guys all be Christian and you all disagree with each other? You don't, how, can, how can you even be a Catholic and say that you agree with the Pope or don't agree with the Pope? It was a very intriguing conversation because everybody held their perspective loosely enough to where we could present it. And it wasn't even that we were going around and taking a poll. It was and you did not feel threatened by someone else's statement. Right. It was the context of friendship. We knew each other well. It was not the first time we'd met anybody. 
Um, but we don't know each other personally. We haven't gone to church with each other. But it was just a certain amount of respect and humility to hear things a different way. That It was phenomenal. Have you been ever embarrassed to invite someone to a religious meeting that is your good friend, professional friend or a friend, because you were afraid of what they would hear there? Not, now, you belong to that entity, and you go and you hear it. Now, to some degree, we can get immune to the message. And we have to guard against that as well. We have to pray, Holy Spirit, please make me open to your voice. You know, sometimes we digest the pastor and not the message. I heard a statement one time, the greatest barrier to the truth is ideology. In other words, if I hold something to be true, no matter what the evidence says, I can't see the truth if it's right in front of me. So we really want, we like our ideology sometimes better than we do truth. That's great. Yes. Just to highlight what Brian's saying is this, we're, headed, we're headed into the political season. And just listen to the points of view around climate change. Yeah. You know, people, people aren't listening. Everybody holds that very, very tightly, even though they're diametrically opposed to each other. And yeah. a major portion of them seem to be ignoring the science. I started on a prayer vigil because um, come Thanksgiving, I'm going to be visiting with family. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Okay? My, um, My sister is an atheist. She went to this college. She's now an atheist. Um, her husband is militantly so. Their children are also atheist and also belong, have strong politically held views that are different than some of mine. Sometimes we, we met, we, we agree, and sometimes we don't. But... Um, my brother-in-law was in Iran during the time that the Shah fell, and he was imprisoned, and he was up for a firing squad several times. And they'd take him into a room like this and put him up against the back wall and shoot over his head and say, the next time we're not going to shoot over your head, tell us what we want to hear. And um, he has some strong political beliefs, as you would, living through times. And um, I respect him for his personal integrity, but I disagree with him strongly in many of the things that he holds dear. And how do you do that, you know? And um, I think that when Christ went into the Pharisee's house for supper. He held many beliefs that were strongly, diametrically opposed to his host. And yet, I don't think Christ ever embarrassed his host to his friends. 
He gave him, several times we, we have examples where he gave admonitions or stories that poked holes in the beliefs of the people to whom he was talking and someone beside him didn't know what was happening. At the Last Supper, he told Judas, go and do quickly what you need to do. And the disciples thought that he was going out to give money to the poor. He protected his betrayer in the betrayal for the sake of his disciples who who would not have understood what was happening if he would have spoke more clearly. But only in retrospect did they understand that he knew. If I could be that loving and that giving and that open that I could send someone to hell and they think they're going to enjoy the trip. <laughs> not, not really, you know. But um, to speak so positively, someone, um, Maxwell, I, I need to get out of here, but uh, Maxwell was talking about a, a person who he went to their house and he was with several other religious people and someone asked this religious leader what something I believed. And he spoke eloquently of Seventh-day Adventists to the point where when they left and the two couples, Maxwell and his wife and this other gentleman and his wife, were walking out, she said, I didn't realize you converted. <laughs> he says, I didn't. But he spoke so positively of Seventh-day Adventists that his wife thought that she had converted. Oh, that I could be that loving. Putting each other in the best possible light. And I think we can learn that in this class when we have people who disagree with us to say, to put them in the best possible light when we describe what they understand. I think we have to know what we believe and we also have to be able to present it in love. And how do we know that what we believe? John 7, 7, 16 and 17. So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it's of God or whether I speak of myself. Jeremiah 29, 11, we like to um, talk about as our favorite verse, but we need to also remember 12 and 13. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and will seek, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. We have to be willing to do the obedience part, otherwise we'll never hear the other part, the starheads. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of learning of you. We ask that you be with us. May we be willing to give others respect, courtesy, and love as you would. Amen.